Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the Jewish Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Moses Lappin, and today I'm joined by Professor Alfred Ivry to talk about his recent book, Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed, a Philosophical Guide, published in late 2016 by the University of Chicago Press. Professor Ivry is Emeritus Professor in the Skirbel Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies, as well as in the Department of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at New York University. He is renowned worldwide as both a scholar and teacher, combining rich philological skills with a deep knowledge of classical and medieval philosophy. For example, he previously edited Averroes' middle commentary on Aristotle's De Anima in both Arabic and Hebrew critical editions, as well as supplying an English-language translation. Today, we'll be talking about his book, Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed, a Philosophical Guide, a commentary on Maimonides' philosophic masterwork, The Guide of the Perplexed. Maimonides, who lived in 1138 to 1204, was born in Cordoba, Spain, and lived his mature life in Egypt. He was a Jewish communal leader and legal scholar, physician, and philosopher. The guide is undoubtedly one of the most influential and perplexing works of any faith written in the Middle Ages. In his book, Professor Ivry provides perhaps the only modern commentary to cover the work as a whole in English. The book begins with an introduction that outlines his main arguments and method, as well as provides a chapter on Maimonides' biography and intellectual context. It then divides the guide into eight thematic sections and provides a paraphrase and analysis of each in turn. Rarely has a summa, the mature reflections of a career steeped in philosophic thought, been so accessible. Good morning, Professor Ivry, and thank you for joining us on the Jewish Studies channel today. I'm excited to get to talk with you about your book. Thank you, Moses. I'm happy to be here and to talk about the book with the audience listening. Before we begin in, all, in earnest, uh, my introduction hardly did justice to your work and career. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write the book? Yes. Well, I majored at uh, Brandeis University for a master's and a doctorate in Jewish philosophy and realized that it was very dependent upon Islamic philosophy. So I went to Oxford and did a, doctorate, a second doctorate in Islamic philosophy. And I thought I would stay away from Maimonides because everybody in Jewish philosophy had something to say about Maimonides. I thought I'd do other people. But something about his Guide of the Perplexed drew me in. Cannot avoid it. It's the central text in medieval Jewish philosophy and had a tremendous influence as well in subsequent scholastic thought. So I began to write on various aspects of the Guide and Maimonides' other writings and thought I would summarize my articles in a book. But when I started the book, thinking I would just be redoing my articles, I read. I thought I should read the guide through again, just to be sure uh, of my own thoughts. And reading it, I realized again, even how the English translation of Shlomo Penis, though very fine indeed, is not accessible in English, to the average person wanting to understand this classical work. So I thought it incumbent upon me 
to explain or by paraphrase each chapter of the guide and then to summarize each theme with an analysis of a philosophical sort to help the individual who is not necessarily a scholar but interested in this subject to understand it. So my book has two purposes, to be accessible to a large audience of non-specialists interested in the themes it proposes to discuss, as well as to scholars who will appreciate my own analyses and perhaps the innovate will recognize that I have something new to say on some of these themes. The book is more than a how-to guide or a summary. Um, it makes a great intervention in, in the field of uh, the study of the guide um, in addition to these things. Um, and as you mentioned in the introduction, the guide is not lacking in commentaries or super commentaries, translations, editions, or even how-to guides. Why did you feel it was necessary uh, for you to write the book? Most people who write about the guide include it in their general summary of Maimonides' writings, particularly his rabbinic writings, the Mishneh Torah, the Code of Jewish Law, or the introduction, the, the, the summary of the Mishnah itself, his, his great commentary on the Mishnah, which summarized it and made it accessible. But they treat the guide in relation to these other books and not in themselves. And there's a certain apologetic, in my opinion, approach defending the guide in relation to the rabbinic treatises to tone down its innovative and radical nature. So I felt that I would concentrate just on the guide to see it clearly without having to see it through rabbinic eyeglasses. If you had three sentences, I mean, we can spend a lifetime talking about the guide. Um, Could you tell the audience a little bit about what the guide is? How would you summarize it as a whole? It's called the Guide of the Perplexed. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, in Arabic, and the perplexed is a person who I think was actually Maimonides, but also his student or students who knew some philosophy, uh, but were very attracted to the theology that the Muslim uh, thinkers of the day were proposing, not the Muslim philosophers, but the Muslim theologians called in Arabic mutakalimun, which just means people who are dealing with uh, the logos or the speech or the thinking of, uh, of, of, of their own particular kind. And this uh, kalam, which is a name for, of the activity of the mutakalimun, this kalamic theology <clears throat> was attractive to intellectuals of the time. It was the reigning thought after classical Greek philosophy, which had also been introduced since the ninth century to the Islamic world. But the theological response had been an anti-philosophical approach, and it was attracting Jewish intellectuals like Sadia Gaon and others who were looking also for systematic understanding of Judaism and did not have a philosophical tradition of their own to rely upon. So Maimonides saw this as a threat to uh, both philosophy and to Judaism, the Kalam, and wrote this book to try to clear away the perplexities or puzzles, the, the dilemma 
that intellectuals were in at the time between intellectual systems that competed with dogmatic religion. Who would you say Maimonides' audience was, and how do you think he came to write the book? Well, I think his audience was uh, people with some uh, exposure to philosophy and to Kalam, and that that probably were, was the uh, a small audience of intellectuals uh, in the Jewish field, uh, as well as in the Islamic world, but sufficiently large and uh, to warrant uh, addressing the issue. And I think, essentially, Maimonides was writing the book to clear up in his mind this dilemma uh, between intellectual systems, the theological system of Kalam, which was attractive, uh, which, as I will explain it, to people, and the philosophical tradition, which had been making some inroads since Ibn Daud, uh, in the century before him, uh, had introduced it into Jewish thought. So there were these two competing systems that Maimonides himself was struggling with. So the perplexed is not just other people, but I believe himself trying to puzzle out uh, this issue. And the guide is his uh, analysis of the major themes that are related to these two intellectual systems. Right. I think one of the things that's striking about the book and, and unique, and I hope we get to talk about it later in the discussion, is your use of Maimonides' biography um, in your analysis of the guide, uh, what you call his own spiritual autobiography. Um, before we get there, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Maimonides' intellectual context, another contribution that your book makes, certainly, and, and some of um, your claims there are, are already eye-opening. Who were his teachers, in a sense, both Jewish and non-Jewish? Um, you discuss in the book the way in which it's made up of these sort of competing forces, his, his theological claims and then also his philosophic claims. Um, and what was the intellectual milieu in which he wrote the book? Yes, well, it's a, a wonderful commentary on 12th century uh, Spanish Jewry that Maimonides already as a young man was exposed to a great deal of classical uh, as well as contemporary Islamic thought, classical Greek thought in Arabic translation, Aristotle, a lot of uh, Neoplatonic authors, Plotinus and Proclus, some Plato, but mostly everything came to him, not directly from the translations, but from Islamic studies of his of his predecessors, particularly the 10th century Al-Farabi, the 11th century Ibn Sina, Ibn Bajah, Ibn Tufail. He was familiar with a whole range of Muslim philosophers, as well as the theologians or the Mutakalimun, uh, who tended to be uh, in the Sunni camp, uh, and their kalam represented uh, a uh, intellectual approach, but not that far different uh, from Sunni beliefs. Uh, and Kalam actually is the philosophical Muslim uh, counterpart to their, to their Sharia books. But then there is a third uh, Islamic influence on him that has been pretty much neglected, but pointed to already by Professor Penis 
uh, and I followed his lead and went further with it. And that is the Shi'i theological tradition that uh, had been very common in Fatimids, uh, in the Fatimid Empire, which ruled Egypt up to the time that Maimonides got there for a few hundred years, and in which uh, Shi'i literature had to be common. And Maimonides, I, I, I contend, absorbed it, and is, it is reflected in the guide to no little uh, extent. So we had the it's classical tradition in Arabic, some of it directly from Aristotle, some of Aristotle's metaphysics uh, and other works, uh, some Plato, but mostly through Plotinus, the Neoplatonic tradition. So those, those are his uh, sources. Now, I should also add, uh, among his Jewish sources, he had knowledge of both Sadia Gaon and the few Jewish philosophers who preceded him, but he does not refer to them and is rather dismissive. In fact, he is completely dismissive of them. He has nothing good to say. Uh, well, he's quiet. And partly the reason is that there was also a Neoplatonic influence, which he never acknowledges in somebody like uh, Isaac Israeli already, one of the first Jewish philosophers. Uh, but uh, he is silent as to some of his sources, particularly the Neoplatonic sources, the Shi'i sources and such. But besides that, of course, the great influence on Maimonides in the Jewish tradition is the Bible and the Midrashic literature. He was a master both of the Halachic tradition, which does not enter uh, in detail into the guide, but is a significant part of it. But besides that, of the Midrashic tradition, which took the biblical text and went further with it in explaining it. And Maimonides weaves the biblical and Midrashic material into the guide in fascinating ways, which is not, in my book, developed. That is something that is a, a whole dimension of the guide that I do not get into because it does not add philosophically to the case that I want to make for Maimonides. I hope to come back to this topic. I think one of the animating features of the book and of your commentary is this sort of wrestling match between what they might call reason and revelation or philosophy and theology. Um, but before we do that, uh, let's jump into your book itself. Uh, you subdivide the guide into uh, eight chronological sections, um, the first of which you entitle Wrestling with Language, which covers the introduction uh, in chapters 1 through 68 of the first part. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what this section is about? Yes, this is the, uh, the daring attempt that Maimonides makes, which uh, was very controversial for many people uh, and turned them away from the guide because uh, he contends that the biblical, his major thesis is that the uh, Bible is a philosophical text and already represents, uh, even before the Greek tradition, uh, a tradition of philosophy that somehow be, was lost to the Jews, and he has come to retrieve it. And he tries to interpret the biblical text in a philosophical way. And that required for him to, re, uh, to, to reassess 
all the active verbs that relate that have God acting in history and responding and speaking to man and hearing him and being a very personal God. And he sees these, this language as um, a political accommodation to the limits of human beings who cannot understand a more abstract deity. And therefore, he, God himself uh, condones or allows for a certain um, appropriation by humans of the divine uh, being and puts God, him into a popular human form, anthropomorphic. And Maimonides sets out to de-anthropomorphize God, to make him an impersonal being, and to treat all the biblical texts, the, the language of them, uh, in that way that they do not mean what they say directly. They are all expressions of God's will uh, to help mankind, and it is put in a personal way, whereas God is not personal. So the language is, uh, is interpreted away from its literal sense to its intentional sense, its meaning, its, its esoteric sense. The exoteric or apparent meaning of, of the language is not what Maimonides feels uh, is the true meaning, it is just there to help human beings who cannot reach the philosophical, sophisticated understanding of the true nature of God. It is quite a stunning uh, linguistic uh, tour de force, and it is based on his conception of the deity. Could you reflect a little bit more about this, what the resistance was to his position? Um and you talk quite a bit in the section about his his philosophy of language, how he the the mechanics and the way in which he does this. Um, what are the stakes of the argument? Uh, the position is is unique, Maimonides, or at least at the time, it's it's quite radical. Um, who was opposing him, and and why were they doing so? Well, he is actually uh, taking the point that God is not interested in mankind directly. The whole uh, relation of God to the world, to the cosmos, is indirect. The deity is seen as a, uh, in a Neoplatonic way, <clears throat> as being a unified being whose unity of being is such that he has absolutely no attributes. He does not hear, speak, uh, have individual thoughts. He, he is all he is a complete unified being who, who who is called an intellect or a mind but that's just another word for an un, incomprehensible oneness that is God now th from that though Maimonides believes there is a emanation of God's will for the world a will that is a wise, sometimes identical with God's wisdom, which, which is responsible for the world being as it is. So th this general beneficial deity has related to the Jewish people in a particular way 
as the people understand it. It is not that God has done this directly, but indirectly through his emanative powers, the forces that come from the deity ultimately, all of which are good, of course, because being, which is the nature of God's being, being is good, and that is, so everything that emanates is good, all the way down to the material world, which is not good in itself because it changes. And that is the emanative scheme that is Plotinian in origin, which Maimonides completely adopts. So there is a certain problem here because God is, is and is not responsible for material being, which means for human beings. He does not directly relate to us, but is indirectly through his, uh, through the powers that emanate from him, which are called uh, uh, for human beings, an active uh, agent intellect that influences all of mankind and in the case of the Jewish people has shaped them in the way that we have the Bible expressing it. Excuse me, Moshe, let me just add, because you had asked me, why did it uh, cause, why was it opposed? For this very reason, you can see people felt that he is denying God's relation to Israel, to the people Israel. The whole history of the Bible is not to be taken literally. So none of it is a historic document to be believed as having occurred the way the Bible represents it. So what was Maimonides' position on this? Uh, people felt he was actually denying the biblical uh, God and, its, and his relation to Israel. That's why there was this opposition. Yeah, so I think we're, we're now getting a, a sense as to why the guide was such a radical book, uh, both in its time and even today. Uh, the next two sections of your book are sort of mirrors of one another, um, and they deal with the end of section one of the guide and the beginning of section two, um, entitled Kalam Claims and Counterclaims, uh, and then the next section entitled Philosophy Affirmed and Qualified Creation. Um, could you reflect briefly on these two chapters? Yes, thank you. The Kalam uh, had a view of God as all-powerful uh, to the point that every moment, every instant of, of life, of, of existence of the world is dependent upon God. There's continuous creation. There's not one creation. Every moment is a new world being created. There is no causal relation uh, between things. It is an illusion that God gives us that there is causality in the world. Everything is uh, due to God's will. <clears throat> Maimonides resented and opposed that because it denied physical reality. It was counterfactual. And he believed with Aristotle that there is natural causation and accepted Aristotelian physics as the framework of the physical world as Aristotle described it, and felt that uh, although the religious belief of an all-powerful God is something that Judaism shares, Judaism did not have to deny the reality of physical nature for that reason. So uh, the Kalam, he opposed with that, and he opposed their uh, theses, which also included a very radical form of uh, atomism, Every moment God creates an atom which has no character except 
the accidents that God gives it. So it's a counter um, physical reality to the Aristotelian hylomorphic world of form and matter. Uh, so Maimonides uh, presents these claims of Kalam and takes it uh, as he presents them uh, with counterclaims that feels he feels shows that they're inadequate. Uh, but the uh, the Kalam uh, response, and he w- sets up a wonderful dialogue, an artificial dialogue. He argues both sides of the issue, and he accepts the fact that the Muta Kalimun would say to him, his attack on uh, Kalam physics, which he considers pseudophysics, is itself based on Aristotelian beliefs, which they reject. So he has not proven the fallacy of their thoughts by a counter physics that itself they would reject. So he realizes that he has no ultimate response. And in fact, he adopts a Kalam position when he comes to speak of creation, which is uh, what he wants to affirm. The philosophers, Aristotle and Plato and the Neoplatonists, all believed in an eternal world, that there was a, fo- a first form or an f- or, or unmoved mover at the beginning uh, of the uh, ladder of being, but that that had been always the case, that the world is eternal. And Maimonides felt it was important, uh, critical even, to argue for a created world. Uh, and But he realized that he really had no arguments, no physical arguments, no philosophical arguments to defend that with. So his uh, position on creation can be seen as a kalam adopt- adoption. But nevertheless, he felt very uh, it was very important to believe in creation because without that, uh, the miracle of creation, one would have a difficulty affirming the miracle of Sinai. He ties the two uh, miracles together. One is the sort of, if, if you believe in creation, you can believe in Sinai. But the problem, as I point out, that both uh, of those uh, theses that he wants to insist upon, he had to know are not really uh, justified according to his belief in an eternal God, because God had to know from all time that he would create the world. So the world was not created eternally. Uh, the world was not created from create for, uh, at one point without God having known at all time that that would be the case. So when he s- tries to argue for creation from absolute nothing, as he does, he knows that it is not absolute nothing because creation was always in God's mind. Um, and um, so that's part of the f- philosophical arguments. When he speaks about philosophy, uh, he, as I said, accepts the physics of Aristotle, but disagrees with their metaphysics and tries to point out that there were problems with the metaphysical schemes that depended upon the astronomy of the day which was itself in a somewhat a confused situation, that the system of concentric circles that had long prevailed since Ptolemy, the Muslim uh, astronomers were showing that there were problems with that. The world was not going around the cosmos in concentric circles. 
and there was a problem with assuming a perfect universe as the Muslim philosophers and Maimonides would like to contend. So he felt that metaphysics had a fatal flaw and one could not argue to the existence of God as he tried to on metaphysical principles. So his metaphysics was shaky, but nevertheless, he does not deny the scheme that he accepted of a God at the center or at the top of a of a ladder of being, as it's known in Neoplatonic terms, from whom emanated the world in stages of greater and greater multiplicity. I think to the modern reader, um, this section, this beginning of the second part of the, of the guide, uh, is challenging in the sense that Maimonides links science and philosophy and theology um, into one argument. Um, and this debate around creation, whether uh, things have always been in eternity or there was a moment of creation, um, sits at the center of, of much of the book and is really a case study for, for some of his thought. Um, and your position itself is, is quite interesting and unique. So I was wondering if you can reflect a little bit more on, on these two points, um, the relationship of philosophy and science uh, at that point in time. To, to medieval philosophy, um, and also why the debate around creation was so important. Yes. Well, uh, so the, the philosophical uh, world was really the scientific world of the time. It depended upon the examination of nature and whether um, one could analyze all parts of it uh, as Aristotle had done. And it was still, he Aristotelian philosophy was accepted as the guidelines for the natural world, for the physical world, and as well for much of the metaphysical understanding due to the link-up of astronomy and metaphysics in general. Uh, with uh, the form uh, of of all material beings being considered the guiding principles and the material substratum giving flesh, as it were, to these uh, intelligible ideas that create the form of things. Now, creation uh, was seen as a difficult issue for the philosophers because there was no way to explain um, non-being. Non-being is not. You cannot have something come from nothing. Uh, for philosophers, that does not make any sense. So there had to be something always uh, existent. And that something uh, was the world. There was no way to explain it otherwise as coming into being from nothing. Except you could argue as uh, Plotinus tried to do following Plato, that the forms of the world, the ideas, the intelligible uh, beings, which are in the Hebrew tradition for Maimonides uh, equated with angels, these intelligible ideas or forms are the essential nature of being. They are the essences of everything. And the material, physical um, aspects um, are what the forms inhabit. 
But those material bases, the physical bases of life, of course, are corruptible. They come to be and pass away, uh, as Aristotle had said. And Plotinus, uh, too, puts the material level of being at the lowest level of the ladder of being, so that one proceeds from the pure one of God to the uh, oneness of the uh, divine mind, or nous, the, um, which has all of being in itself, but be- the beginning of dissemination of the inseparable one into uh, distinct ideas. But that is still uh, the highest level that one could reach would be universal mind. Um, from there, there emanates the universal soul, which is the uh, further dissemination into concrete uh, forms of all the forms of the world. And they trickle down, as it were, and inhabit the world as we know it. And at that lowest level of soul comes nature, the natural world, which is the physical world. But since that is a changing reality always, coming to be and passing away, that is not really, really being. That is a kind of uh, inferior form of being, which is the absence of being. And that is called, uh, in, uh, the, also in technical terms, the privation of being, the absence, Adam, or the, uh, what is absent, Adam in Arabic, um, Ayin in uh, Hebrew. Uh, or Ne'edar, Ne'edar rather. So, so the world as we know it, our physical reality is and is not real. It's real enough to us, of course. It's the only world we have and we live in, but it is not the real, it is not the eternal world of being. Of course, true being, the universal ideas are eternal. And we represent some, we represent a diluted form through our intellects, of the intelligible world. And that simple intellect that we have, when we cultivate it and move from the particular to the universal, we join with eternal being. And that is our goal uh, as human beings in this Neoplatonic tradition, which Maimonides accepts, to move from the particular to the universal through our understanding of the true nature of being in each case, and to move up to greater and greater understanding of general truths till we come to that which is eternal, which Maimonides links with that which is divine. The the eternal world is the world that, uh, that God inhabits. That is the divine world. And that is what we should try to reach in our lifetime through study of the natural world, because that is where God will be located in the eternal being of true being. Before we continue on with the book, I wanted to take a moment to reflect on uh, the way in which you wrote the book. Uh, You use a paraphrase um, in addition to your sections of analysis, and a paraphrase is a rhetorical mode that, while common for medieval philosophic commentaries, is no longer the case. Uh, why did you make this stylistic choice, and how did you go about writing the paraphrases for each section? 
Well, this goes back to when I, I tried to read the guide before writing the book and realized how difficult it is to understand the English translation uh, for those who are reading it in English, and even the Hebrew uh, translation for the, uh, I mean, there is now a modern Hebrew translation that Michael Schwartz prepared about a decade ago, uh, which is easier for the Hebrew reader. But for the English reader, there is still no easy translation. The translation is a fine translation, published in 1963, I think, or, or 65, by the University of Chicago Press by Shlomo Penis. But when you try to read it, uh, it follows very closely in the uh, original fo formulation of the Arabic and makes for a difficult reading in English. So I felt the uh, interested reader should be afforded a more uh, easy way to understand the text, and therefore I paraphrased each chapter um, in what I hoped would be an accessible uh, without uh, dumbing it down, but making it uh, easy, more readable to allow a person to go back to the guide itself and appreciate the uh, chapters. Uh, and, th and then I presented my analysis of the unit of, of each uh, theme to give it some uh, philosophical depth beyond just reading and understanding the chapters themselves. Let's uh, talk for a moment about contradictions in the guide. Uh, although Maimonides famously writes in his introduction that there will be intentional contradictions in the work, uh, there seems to be a range of contemporary and medieval readings of the guide on this issue. Um, from the position that Maimonides' true position can only be discerned from close readings of these contradictions, uh, to some contemporary readers who feel that there are no such contradictions at all in the work. Uh, how do you understand this important issue? Uh, and what do you think is at stake in this argument? Well, uh, of course, the contradictions are there as part of the uh, political uh, difficulty that Maimonides would be in to present the guide in the straight way that I tried to present it, to philosophically, to see through the contradictions and to take uh, a stand that sees Maimonides as a deist. That, of course, uh, which is what happens when you make God impersonal. He can be a being that is somehow uh, responsible for the world in an indirect way, but is not the personal God. So um, if, if Maimonides wrote that very directly, as I presented, uh, he would have been attacked mercilessly. He was suspected of being uh, heretical and untraditional, but had to cover himself. After all, he, at that point that he wrote the guide, was a uh, very respected rabbi, a leader of the Jewish community, not just in Spain, uh, not just in Egypt, but throughout the Mediterranean world, throughout the Sephardic world, and making his impressions in the Ashkenazi world in southern France and Italy as well. So he pre presents uh, his position, but covers it with uh, traditional kinds of language. For example, though he 
starts off in this strong way, denying any attributes to God. He then talks about the deity, and it takes the biblical um, passages, as you would think by reading at first reading, accepting them literally. So uh, the whole historic development, the whole treating of the patriarchs and of Moses in this direct way, and of the prophets too, make you think that uh, he accepts the the Bible as given. And the Midrashic material also, of course, which plays with the biblical text, is also very personal. And he presents these uh, in ways that make the reader think that his more uh, direct statements to the contrary are not his true positions. With your commentary on the guide, uh, the next section that you deal with at the end of the second part of of the guide uh, is on the topic of prophecy. Uh, could you reflect, reflect brief, briefly on Maimonides' opinion of prophecy uh, and how it differs from other religious thinkers? Yes, this is very dramatic. Um, Maimonides accepts the uh, prophetological approach of his Muslim uh, predecessors, Al-Farabi and Avicenna. And it's tied up with the uh, Aristotelian understanding of, of uh, epistemology, of psychology, that um, we understand something through our intellect, through our imagination. We, we receive impressions of the world through our, sense, through our uh, faculties, our sensory faculties. And our eyes and ears and even our nose, we, we relate to the world through our faculties and we see concrete images of things. And it's up to our intellect to uh, purge these individual impressions and to form uh, propositions or statements, understandings uh, stripped of their immediate particular nature in universal terms, and that we are helped in that by our, by our, uh, the natural gift that we have of intelligence, which starts out in a crude, unfinished way. But as we go, as we mature and study and learn, we get increasingly sophisticated in being able to make universal judgments. But in all this, we are helped by the uh, in- universal, intelligible, closest to us emanating ultimately from the divine, which is called the agent intellect or the active intellect. That is the intelligence in the world that gives us forms to think with, including the form of man, which is the intellect itself. So our in, our intellects are descended from and part of the universal intellect. And the more we know, the more we join with this universal agent intellect. Now, all that is the general theory of how we come to know. The prophet, though, is an individual whose imagination, uh, whose senses and whose imagination are very keen, and as well, his intellect is very sharp. And, And the prophet is able to understand universal truths that come to him from the agent intellect when he is already attuned to it through his own uh, endeavors to understand universals. And when he receives these uh, under, these intelligible 
ideas, he is able to put them in particular forms. So the prophet sees universals and applies them. He understands them and then sees them in, in particular historic moments. So the prophecies come out in popular terms, but they are cloaking universal truths. Now, Maimonides accepts that general theory that he gets from the Muslim philosophers before him, which was adopted also by Ibn Daud and uh, was the reigning theory of prophet, how prophecy works. But Maimonides makes an exception for Moses. For Moses, he says, his, he was the greatest of prophets because he was the only one who gave laws. He was a political leader as well as a prophet inveighing against social injustices. And Maimonides was able to, to be the uh, unique person he was because he received his prophecy in purely intellectual terms. That's Maimonides' contention. He, uh, Maimonides, therefore, uh, was greater than all the other prophets, and then uh, his prophecy is unique for being purely intellectual. The problem with that, as I point out, <clears throat> is, and the Torah is, of course, Maimonides, I mean, excuse me, Moses's uh, understanding of God's wishes for the Jewish people, put in this historic term, historic, which moves into it being a political term with the laws that are given in the Torah. Now, the problem I point out is that all that is done in very concrete human language, which is part of our uh, imaginative faculty. And Maimonides supposedly, uh, Maimonides contends that Moses supposedly did not have that kind of prophetic uh, access, that he his entire prophecy was intellectual, not imaginative. So I point out, where is the Torah, where is, my, where is Moses for Maimonides in the giving of the Torah? And I contend that that is not the Torah that Mo Moses received, but Moses' explanation of, of the Torah in popular language. So the Torah we have is a Torah that was not only written by Moshe, but conceived by Moshe, conceived because it is in human terms, and God does not have human expressions. God is not, does not speak in human terms. So the whole Torah is Moses' uh, explanation of a revelation that is, that is esoteric, that is not known. And Maimonides has come to explain that to the people in his book. Now, I contend that that entire uh, understanding comes from the Shi'i tradition, which had prophets receive these uh, revelations from God in unique terms, but present them in popular terms. And then someone came along to explain the true meaning of them uh, for philosophers. Now, Moses, Maimonides, in accepting this view, 
turns out to be the uh, expositor of Mosaic prophecy. He is the one who has come to explain Moses' true understanding of God as Maimonides presents it, which is this non-personal God. And I claim that he gets that whole view from the Shi'i tradition. If we continue on with your book, the next section tackles the beginning of the third section of the guide um, that deals with metaphysics as well as providence and apparent evil in the world. I was wondering if you can reflect on the contribution of your commentary uh, on these two very challenging uh, concepts. Uh, thank you. That's uh, some of the central issues in the guide. He, he claims from the beginning that his great concern was to explain the, both the language of the Bible and the metaphysical uh, content that was not supposed to be told ever divulged, according to the rabbinic tradition, uh, publicly. So he feels, though, he must be uh, break with that tradition to some degree, though he insists that uh, it be kept a secret uh, to those who are not prepared to understand it. Because at the, uh, at the uh, head of it is this unknown deity, the unmoved mover in Aristotelian terms, or the one, the complete one in Neoplatonic terms. But the metaphysics that he discusses is really the standard metaphysical uh, issues of the day, which is a description of the heavens in terms of uh, spheres, which are supposedly in concentric circles that he knows are no longer to be accepted but uh, the problem of the how one can accept that there are no good convincing proofs for God's existence from metaphysics, but nevertheless, that is the uh, framework that he feels he doesn't have a different framework and feels one can still work with it because it does posit a God at the center, at the, at the source of all being and that uh, the world can be understood, the, the heavens can still be understood as being motivated by an intelligible form, which could be called an angel, and a uh, soul, which is a, 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 an efficient cause that moves the spheres. So he describes the heavens as having forces, natural forces, one a formal force, one a material force, all moving the spheres, coming down in concentric circles or supposedly concentric to Earth, which uh, is, but this whole system is somewhat dubious and one really can't prove. And at one point he even says it's, it seems the text is perhaps somewhat debatable whether he does uh, believe that there is no good proof for God's existence from the spheres or from metaphysics, but still he doesn't abandon metaphysics. He feels there are still things that one can use with it to establish God's relation, which is really a indirect relation to the world. Now, the big issue, the divine that he has, 
which is also ultimately Neoplatonic, is that from God's whole relation to the world, however indirect, is suffused with wisdom and will. The wisdom and will which are identical, but we see them in different aspects of God, permeate the universe. And God's providence, therefore, his intention for the world is always that being prevail and being is good. So all the world is uh, ultimately good and all accidents or are the accidents which happen in nature, although they are real enough, they should not influence the sense of goodness that prevails in the world because it is only the material world that is involved in the accidental happenings, the tragic happenings, the death, the plagues, the illness that we all suffer at one time or another in the world, the, even the terrible deaths through warfare and illness and plagues, they can all be seen as part of the natural world, which in the, on the whole is good. So without denying the tragedy of life, it, has, it should not be seen as ultimately an evil or tragic world. It is ultimately a good world, and we must accept what happens with equanimity. And that is the job of the philosopher, to, to transcend the apparent evil, which is only apparent because it is not real. Realness is with eternal being, which never changes. And that is the world we should concentrate with. The final sections of your book uh, deal with the law um, and with true knowledge. And I was wondering if we can end off a discussion uh, of the commentary itself by reflecting on these two things. Uh, the law, which you mentioned earlier, Maimonides is famous for his other work, the Mishnah Torah, which is a code of law. Um, and additionally, there's been a lot of discussion in contemporary readings of the guide um, that read the guide as primarily a political work. So I was wondering if you could situate your own opinion uh, within that dialogue, uh, why or why not the guide is a political work, um, and also the relationship of the guide as a whole. The dis what we've discussed so far are topics that one would think are very, very far from the law, um, and how those topics relate to the law. Yes, yes. A good part, part of the guide in, chapter, in the third part of the guide tries to rationalize the law, to present it as um, both uh, logical, rational, and beneficial. Uh, the same, that is to say, uh, Moses uh, presented the people with a legal document that they should follow to lead them to a happy uh, society, a society in which everybody has a place and which is, is to be governed with equanimity and justice and charity. And he tries to show the laws in that light, uh, guided, as it were, by a sense of fairness and justice that is partly uh, taken from Aristotle, partly from the rabbinic tradition itself. And so that is a political document that he uh, uh, goes to great lengths to... Uh, Justify. In this respect, he is really being a theologian, trying to assert the superiority of Mosaic law 
over other laws, over the Sharia of Islam particularly, that was threatening, of course, in his time, those who were uh, were attracted to Islam. <clears throat> now, part of the political system that he inherits from Al-Farabi and is very influenced by is the need for the uh, governor or the, or the ruler of the state. And Maimonides is creating, uh, Moses is creating a state, the Jewish people, is to um, show the people that the benefits of the law, even if he has to uh, be cunning and manipulate the people a bit. So, now, Maimonides is very daring. He admits that much of the law comes from pagan sources. He believes there was a Sabian influence, a, a uh, pagan influence that the people inherited and that God in his cunning, or one could say Moses in his understanding of God's cunning, uh, allowed them to accept even though it is not the true nature of God to want. The big uh, issue being sacrifices. Maimonides as much as says that God did not want sacrifices. God does not need sacrifice. Of course, he being an impersonal God, he's not a real being. Uh, in human terms, has no need for sacrifices. But the people would not accept that in Moses in Moses's time, and therefore Moses goes to great lengths to insist upon the need and duty to sacrifice to God. In this respect, Moses is Moses is adopting a certain cunning that is um, already emphasized by. Uh, Al-Farabi and the tradition, and uh, Maimonides agrees <clears throat> that that is the necessity of a ruler to pretend. For example, God is angry in the Bible, and Moses and Maimonides sort of reiterates that you have to be good or you'll be punished. But he doesn't believe that God really does that, but he accepts it. So there is a certain um, manipulation or. Um, uh, exoteric use of these passages that make it a political document. And I accept that part, that interpretation of the guide, but I feel people who emphasize that don't uh, sufficiently appreciate the metaphysical uh, dimension of the book in terms of its Neoplatonic uh, element. One of the things that I found most striking and innovative in your commentary is your use of biography as an analytic tool. Um, and I think that that's unique in, in the works that I read about Maimonides. Um, you see Maimonides as torn in his loyalties and as seeking guidance as much as offering it. Um, and you see the guide itself as his mature spiritual and intellectual autobiography. And although you set this out quite clearly in your introduction and in the conclusion, it doesn't explicitly leak into your paraphrase or the commentary. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the process um, in which you came to see this as the central issue um, and the way in which you came to write the book um, with this sort of axiom? Well, I see that as the guide starts with a strong insistence upon the oneness of the deity and the lack of any attributes, wherever he uh, then refers to God, in uh, more open, uh, popular terms, I consider it to be a deliberate uh, subterfuge that he is trying to uh, 
have his audience that is not prepared for his radical position accept uh, accept it. So I don't continually uh, emphasize that, but I do point that in all his uh, theses, he seems to backtrack and uh, have doubts uh, or he's not prepared to himself to insist upon it. So his playing with the common understanding is not just uh, manipulating his audience. I feel it's his own struggling to uh, accept such a extreme position. Uh, I can I contrast him briefly with Spinoza, who did not feel any obligation to the Jewish people in presenting a deistic position of God, and actually berated Maimonides for for compromising his view. But in my opinion, Maimonides was, in, in a sense, uh, compromised because in his own being he was unable to break with the rabbinic tradition. So he presents a skeptical uh, view and a, a bordering on quite an agnostic view, but is not completely prepared to, t- to take that position. So uh, that is my uh, way of reading the guide, to, to give his, particularly in his midrashic treatments, which have been shown to be very subtle denials of the tradition, I feel there is also... A, a great love for the tradition and an appreciation that makes him able to affirm it even while trying to treat it very abstractly. To conclude, I wanted to ask you what you think Maimonides and his Guide for the Perplexed has to offer readers in 2017. Well, I think there are many people today who cannot accept a traditional religious view of a personal God, finding that a little simplistic and uh, philosophically uh, vacant. But they can uh, appreciate, and many people do, feel there is a certain uh, spiritual or divine, let's call it, uh, presence in the world that uh, can explain some of the moments in which we feel disappointed or defeated or, or uh, moments when we require inspiration and see a divine presence or a God, and that the Jewish tradition offers us uh, a framework, a political framework, through, through observance of the law in whatever degree we wish to or through an appreciation of it that gives us a social and framework in which to be Jewish, and can therefore accept a book such as Maimonides as offering a sophisticated understanding of accepting a tradition, even while denying the uh, literal biblical presentation, can find depth in the tradition, as Maimonides did, while finding philosophical uh, ways to appropriate it. I would like to end our interview today by thanking Professor Ivory for joining us on the Jewish Studies channel of the New Books Network. We've been talking about his new book, Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed, a philosophical guide published in 2016 by the University of Chicago Press. <laughs>